Hi there, you found the Rebirth Podcast. Glad to see you. Mm-hmm. My name is Kate Fenton, and in this podcast, we look to find the magical in the mundane. And that is definitely the space that David Newman sets with us on this episode. I haven't done the math, but I have known David for over a decade, and I was delighted and nourished. Um, by this conversation. I feel like in 2020, whatever we can bring into ourselves to remind us of ourselves is deep medicine. And I'm fascinated by uh, mantra and Vedic practices and that although in some ways yoga, the physical um, part has become something that a lot of people throw the name around, the depth of the science has actually in some ways become more elusive. It's sort of like, and David, I hope you're okay with this example, when you're driving around outside of Philadelphia, even if you don't eat cheesesteaks, and you see Philly cheesesteaks in Texas, and you're like, that's just not what it is. And just because we think we can reproduce something does not mean that it has the same texture and depth um, produced where it originates. I know, mantra and cheesesteaks, they're the antithesis, but you know what? We're all filled with polarity. And the more we can sit with that, I think the easier it is to be with ourselves. So I'm really excited to have David and share what he brings, um, what he brings in this conversation because one of the, the goals of rebirth if you've been listening for a while, is to talk to people who had the courage to make a leap. And David talks about some really major leaps that he's made in his life and he does it, you know, of course time has passed, but he talks about these major transitions with such grace. And when we're in something that we can't understand to remember that we have had moments and other people have had moments that might be inconceivable in that present crossroad, that it becomes this well-worn gem in your pocket that you you treasure for yourself and you can bring out and share for others. And David does that beautifully in this episode. You can find out more about David Newman, who officially is a sacred mantra artist, singer, songwriter, and international teacher at davidnewmanmusic.com. davidnewmanmusic.com. And at the time of this airing of the episode, David has online classes with Practical Mantra in Kirtan College. So please check him out. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. Hi, David. Thanks for joining us today. How are you? I'm great, Kate, and happy to be here. I'm stoked. I am in full disclosure because I'm going to talk about this. Is we had a little bit of a of a start, a, a technological hiccup, yep. and I'm, I'm telling this to the listener for a reason. I actually didn't want to inconvenience someone else, and I took myself out of where I normal normally set my space to do podcasting. And I think that's a common thing when we have something we're passionate about, but we're not. Um, owning it, that we'll move over and make ourselves a little bit smaller and not take up as much space. And I feel that, I don't know, but I'm on the journey with this conversation with you today that when we get into the practice that you're offering about mantra, that could be a really good tool to check in on if you're doing that or if, or if you're not, would you? Absolutely. Well, may, may I ask if you're back in your spot? I sure am. You have reclaimed. I have. I have. Sure. And sometimes adversity brings us back. You know, the fact that we had some technical issues sort of showed you that you need to be back in your podcast spot. Yeah, it seems so simple. And I I know when people listen to small examples, they're like, yeah, Kate, that's not that as not as big as what I'm dealing with. And it's like, well, no, but if you're learning new muscles, you, you get your successes from the small noticings before you jump to the bigger ones. Absolutely, yeah, the the more you practice, the the more those muscles get stronger. And then when you have those big hurdles, those big challenges, you're you're ready, you're prepared. Exactly, I am, so I see that as no coincidence. So David and I have known each other for a a minute, um, I'm realizing it's over a decade now. And I know, it's so crazy. I think it's more if I did the math, but that's okay. 
I always um, say somewhere back there. That's yeah, somewhere there. back there. <laughs> somewhere That's back exactly. there. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I had stumbled into what was at the time your yoga studio. Mm-hmm. And depending on, because we have all different age groups of, of listeners, like that was no small feat when it started. So if someone doesn't know the name David Newman, and of course, I'll tag your um, website. Um, if someone's listening and like, hey, I really, you know, learn more about this person. I want to read his book or I want to do, um, I want to journey into his mantra class. That'll be an easy access point. But I, but your yoga on Maine in Philadelphia happened. Could you walk us through like a, you know, also dating myself, the Reader's Digest version of why that was such a big leap? Absolutely. So in um, the early 1990s, I was in law school in New York City, and I, I'll use the word stumbled upon, you use that, a yogi who was in New York, who was from living in Maui at the time. And I had been interested in yoga, but I went to his weekend workshop and I was absolutely blown away. And my second year of law school, I became uh, impassioned, I would almost say obsessed with yoga. I basically studied, studied my, uh, my law school courses and practiced yoga for hours a day. Um, that was my <laughs> life there. And so I graduated law school in 1992, moved from New York back home to Philadelphia with this law degree, but also this extraordinary interest and desire to teach yoga and got the blessing of this particular teacher. And so uh, after taking the bar exam in August, I figured just for, I wouldn't say it's more than just for the fun of it because I was deeply inspired, but I'll look at some real estate spaces. And so I drove around and, and found this space in a, uh, a little a little town outside. It's actually in <laughs> Philadelphia, but not Center City in Maniunk. And it had a for rent sign. And I walked in the door and I saw I saw the yoga center that was to be there for, I don't own it anymore. And it just moved last year, but a yoga on Maine has existed in some form for the last 27 years. That's amazing. Yeah. And I never turned back, you know, my parents who are more professionally oriented sort of just figured I would get it out of my system. Sure. And, but I, but, but that never came to pass. It's now just more deeply in my system. <laughs> Do you, I have a question. And, um, <clears throat> Do you feel that the law school, some people would be like, oh, what a weight, you know, depending on your mindset, right? Like, how would you explain your impression of that journey of law school now, looking at where your life is now? It, it definitely um, connects. Uh, I'll tell you a, a really amazing story. My third year in law school, I had a friend that was studying with a Lakota Native American medicine man. Um, his name is Izzy Hartman Zephyr. That was, that was the medicine man's name. And so he would hold sweat lodges up in upstate New York. So one weekend, I took a bus from New York City up to sort of near the Woodstock, Kingston area there. And at the end of the sweat lodge, um, he would go around and, and, and channel messages from Grandfather Spirit for everybody in the sweat lodge. And he didn't even know me. And his, his messages were first person from Great Spirit. And the message that came through uh, for me was, one, one day you will be an advocate for me. Mm. And if, for you know those who know, that's when you practice law. That's what you're called. You're advocating for your mm -hmm. client. So um, absolutely, over the years, being a teacher and attempting to communicate as clearly as I can esoteric ideas in ways that can be received and digested and are meaningful to people, my capacity to communicate and clarify my thoughts were deeply shaped by law school. The other thing that was shaped by law school and now in this divisive sort of political world we're living in is a capacity to, to, you know, in law school, you look at a case and rather than advocating for this person or that person, you, you, you look into how all the possible sides would advocate mm -hmm. their case. So it gives you the capacity to step back and objectively observe the situation and make arguments from all perspectives. So that's, that, that is very yogic, you know, the ability beautiful. To, mm -hmm. to meet a situation with an open mind. And, um, and that's stayed with me in my yoga practice and approach to life all these years later. 
Oh, I'm so glad I asked that. I think sometimes when you're in the middle of something and you're trying to switch out from A to B, the mind can be really cruel to you. Sure. You know, but when the yeah. when the tapestry is done, you're like, oh, look at how that really wove in together. Yeah, suspending judgment. Mm-hmm. Suspending judgment. And I think you get a clearer picture of a situation when you don't just jump into it. You just you just watch and 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 wait and look and 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 that requires a certain kind of discipline and i feel that I, I the beginnings of that discipline definitely started in law school i remember being in one of your yoga classes and i think it was for teacher training but my mind is not that reliable so it could have just been i was attending like i think it was sundays that you taught mm-hmm. is that true sundays it was sunday mornings yeah and I feel, I don't mean to put you on the spot because it was a fabulous story. You were a little late because you were chanting and you had just been told this whole thing that you were going to, you needed to chant. Like there was something in connection in that time period from you going from, an, from primarily asana. And that the, I mentioned the lateness only because I remember your exuberance. Like <laughs> right. you came onto the thing like, no guys, this is so amazing. Guess what I have to share with you. And to me, that's authenticity, right? Cause that sure. life doesn't always happen in these compartments of um, construction that we, that we want them to be, to happen. And I, I don't know if I could remember any other class as clearly as your exuberance of that. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Well, I've, I, I've always, yeah, I, I do. I remember that actually. Um, and I, I've always been very grateful to be given that the gift to follow that enthusiasm, that inspiration, mm-hmm. and to trust it, even when it kind of looks absurd. And, and, I'll, and I'll tell you, Kate, now, obviously, well, many of them are closing, unfortunately, but, um, you know, there are yoga centers on every block in Philadelphia, and that's a bit of an exaggeration. But nonetheless, in 1992, there really weren't any. And so, you know, people around me thought it was absurd that I could even make a living by opening up a center that was devoted solely to the practice of yoga. It's similarly, um, some years later, I really wanted to go more, more deeply into yoga practice. And I really thought it was going to be through the yoga asanas, through the physical practice. And I was introduced to uh, chanting, a particular form of chanting, which is called kirtan. And I had been a guitar player and songwriter literally since I was 13 years old. And when I heard yoga come alive in sound and in music uh, through this practice of kirtan chanting, it was a light went off inside and Mm. said, hey, it's like meeting, you know, meeting the person of your dreams. It was just everything that I had ever yearned for came together in that experience. And so I started introducing chanting into my yoga classes. And I'll just tell you a funny little story. And that is when I first started doing it, I would, you know, start class with a chant, which was new to everybody who was in my mm-hmm. classes. And people would, you know, sort of sit sit on on their pillows with their arms crossed and their lips sealed. Like, what what is this? Is just bizarre. <laughs> and and then, like a year or so later, I remember coming into class one day and saying, "Well, today we're, we're not going to chant. We're actually going to do a quiet meditation." And everybody revolted. What do you mean we're not going to chant? They had, you know. <laughs> So I, it was just my, you know, my dharma or my my you know, guidance to just bring these mantras to people's attention. And what happened for me was as I was teaching yoga classes, you know, the, the initial chant that started class went from two minutes to five minutes to 10 minutes to 15 minutes. And I thought maybe there's a career change calling me, you know. So it seems to someone listening just to this, that you get to a place where people go, oh, okay, now we know what David's doing. And then you go, oh, well, no, no. Okay, okay, now we know what David's doing. Well, sure, right? So Absolutely. the yoga, I, I, I have to appreciate there's been, um, you know, yoga on Maine was a hub. And I feel like one of the things about a yogic and a sacred space is that it teaches you you know, it can hold you really tightly. And then it also simultaneously teaches you not to be attached. Right. Absolutely. That's very true. So (laughs) my favorite yoga story was by a great spiritual teacher. His name is Jiddu Krishnamurti. Somebody asked him once, do you practice yoga? And his answer was yes, but I try not to make a habit out of it. (laughs) 
Well said. Well said. So can you now, now you're te- now let's do, I guess, go with a little bit of the arc. So you step away from yoga on Maine and you, you're traveling. Is that kind of right? right? And sure, traveling yeah. right. for the new listener worldwide. Worldwide. And it yeah. was a progression. You know, I started, I was teaching yoga maybe 100% of the time and then 90% of the time with 10% travels. And that ratio kept shifting until I just eventually turned the yoga center over to my good friend. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was a progression over time. But there was, I'm very guided on the interplanes, often through dreams. And I had a dream one night where this, I heard this voice said, you know, you're going to be asked to go. And when you are, go that was Mm. that was the message I got and yeah my 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 life just moved in a different direction and I found myself literally traveling all all over the world and um you know until this these last few months (laughs) um nonstop almost so how has the last and I like to just call it 2020 you know thank you I appreciate that so how has 2020 I was thinking about and I thought well since you did travel so much I would imagine for some people, and I would like you to talk about your class so that we can orient people, but I would imagine in some cases, this is actually pretty exciting for people that might've only seen you once a year. You mean being online, teaching online? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it was a long time coming for me. I mean, we hate to say that a tragedy like this informs the the course of our lives, Uh, but for me, um, it it was kind of a long time coming in a sense. I I was ready to just be here. Um, and I have a, uh, I have a nine-year-old daughter, mm-hmm. so um, I've, I've really appreciated the slowdown, and I've pivoted to doing much of my work online. Although I've been teaching for many years, I've also been performing a lot with bands uh, and other musicians uh, at festivals, and I think what shifted for me is the realization that people are really in need, some in desperate need of tools to help them cope and also move through some of these changes and not just cope, but expand and grow. Uh, and so I found my way, I found that I'm a little less oriented toward performing and more or- oriented toward educating. And mm. so these, the online courses that I'm doing now is, is giving me that opportunity. The metaphor I've used is that I've been, you know, if I was a chef, I've been, I've been cooking meals through my music for people for many years. And now I feel like I'm teaching them how to cook by internalizing mm. the mantras for themselves. Would you educate us a little bit on what mantra is? If someone has never heard that word, like what, what is mantra? Sure. Mm-hmm. Well, the word mantra has a few different meanings, uh, but its actual root comes from, from the word mind. And the word mantra, the, the two syllables put together mean to guide or protect the mind, in mm-hmm. essence, into a more uh, spacious, uh, positive, connected state of being. And, you know, we all know the mind wanders and, you know, it, it can get uh, imposed upon by negativity and fear. And so mantra helps shift one to a more holistic, connected, trusting, loving state of being. Um, the mantras in the yogic tradition, and there's mantras in many traditions, mm-hmm. come from an uh, come from an ancient language that was revealed for the sole purpose of spiritual liberation, and that's called Sanskrit. So uh, the mantras that I work with work with the the language of Sanskrit, and these so, this sequence of syllables that are placed together to achieve certain kinds of results and you can say them quietly you can say them out loud you in the practice that i mentioned earlier kirtan you sing them so there's a musical element involved so there's lots of different ways that one can practice these mantras that's a beautiful um invitation for someone to consider and when i'm listening to you say it it's also reminding me if someone isn't already familiar with with mantra neurology you know neurology is becoming people learning about neurological pathways and the word trauma has kind of brought people to learn more about neurological responses and that you you can repattern the brain and if that was the mindset that you are comfortable with it for me i see the connection but would you agree that that mantra is in it has a different might might have a different destination but it could be 
in the same umbrella of understanding how to become friends with your mind as opposed to, to being a prisoner of it. Absolutely. It works on vibration and we're made of vibration. We're made of energy and the power of mantra is the vibration of the sound and its healing capacity. What I always teach my new mantra students is that most languages are symbolic in the sense that if I said the word apple, uh, it's the word is a symbol for the thing. So there's a, a, a there's a dis, not a disconnect, but there's a distance between the word and the thing that the word is describing. So the word apple, you, you won't get the taste of, of the apple through the word. Um, and especially you won't get the nourishment of the apple through the word. But in Sanskrit, especially in its mantra form, that's called, it's considered to be uh, non-symbolic language. Mm. So the, the sound of the word uh, is exactly the same to which the word is pointing to. So it's there. There's no uh, mental or intellectual imposition that a practitioner has to bring to the mantra. It's the vibration of the sound itself does all the work. I'm I'm, let, I'm letting some silence for the digestion of that. In a time period where there's so much consumption of visual auditory information maybe that we're not even choosing to take in um to have something that is nourishing and might even be clarifying meaning to like kind of clear the slate of all that information that hasn't been hasn't been digested um that's a really powerful and practical tool for right now it is and just consider how much noise is out there in the world on so many different levels so mm -hmm. i consider the mantra practice to be a real haven for the psyche, a haven for the mind, and <clears throat> extremely healing for the body too, not just the mind and the, and the spirit. Well, I see a lot of people talking about, you know, in forums or clients or just, you know, in passing, a lot of people are having difficulty with sleeping, you know, and that anxiousness or the full, the undigested information, even if it's not concrete worry that you can place, sort of it's hard for the body then it's like eating a full meal then trying to fall asleep comfortably after you might be comatose, but you don't fall asleep. You know, you can't really relax. Absolutely. Into... Mm -hmm. Stabilizing mm -hmm. the system into that, into that center point where they're, you know, that, the, as a mantra singer who um, shared this experience through music with a group um, over time, I, I was, reflecting on what it is about the practice that draws people. And what mm -hmm. I realized is, is that what mantra does is it fosters a sense of one's own absence. So that aspect of mind that's constantly drilling and driving at a person, when that's released and that focal point, that separative focal point dissolves, there is a release and an opening that takes place where healing happens. And there are, many ways to approach that but mantra is is a very powerful one very ancient very old and like i said because of the the nature of this of the, the the potency of the sound itself it doesn't really require anything of us but just to be in relationship to that sound is english the same as a seed sound as sanskrit Oh boy, you know, I don't really, it's necessarily, I, I think there are words in words in English. And by the way, I think words in general are very powerful. Mm. I can, mm -hmm. I can uh, be with a person and listen to the way that they communicate in the spaces that they take and the words that they choose to use. And I can see a direct correlation between those words and that person's state of being. Mm -hmm. So I think that language in and of itself is very powerful. And certainly by choosing certain words and to communicate consciously and lovingly, English does have the capacity to transform. Um, and But what I would say about English is that it's used for, you know, also many different kinds of ways of communication, many of which are just mundane. Hey, can you pass me that plate? Can you do this? Um, so how's it going, Kate? What you up to? Sanskrit, you know, there's none of that in Sanskrit. Every mm -hmm. aspect of, of Sanskrit was revealed in the, in, in the spiritual text of India called the Vedas as, as um, a means toward spiritual liberation and uh and expansion
And correct me if I'm wrong, and this is a leading question, but it is my understanding that there's space for many different ishtadevatas or, or beliefs in the practice of mantra. Like does mantra dictate who you're, you know, if someone's listening to that, it's a beautiful, first of all, I love what you said as the distinction between, in, you know, the power of words, because as someone who loves writing and words, I, I think they're very powerful and we would do well to remember that what we speak, we create. And that was a gorgeous invitation to that really articulate. You must have gotten a law degree, but, um, (laughs) but I'm wondering about, um, can you just address that? Cause I know that when I, I'll tell you that when I was a a high school teacher and I was teaching yoga at this place called yoga on main, and I would um, invite some of my um, friends that were teachers who trusted me. And I know two of them, didn't were scared to come in because they felt intimidated and I thought oh that's such a shame because no one told them that everyone is welcome you know what I mean that was in their concept and they ended up coming but I thought it was very um it was very telling for me that we might have this concept that you that yoga isn't for everybody or that the thought concepts don't have an umbrella can you address that at all Absolutely. These mantras, for me, they are um, universal. They're, they work on, as I mentioned, the energy body of the human system. Many of the kirtan mantras focus on the heart and our capacity to be loving and to be kind and to open up to creativity. These are all universal. There's the, These mantras don't uh, force us or ask us to align ourselves with any belief system mm-hmm. or re- religious ideology. Um, and, and they can be approached on, on many. You can approach a mantra from a religious standpoint. You can approach it from an archetypal standpoint uh, or an emotional. Um, or I think the most universal is vibrational, which is sort of transcends all of that. And people of all religions and faiths can engage mantras in, in a variety of different functional ways that that have nothing to do with belief. And I've always appreciated that about the yoga system. You don't start with belief. Right. You start with the hypothesis of your own spiritual journey and you explore to see what reveals itself as true for you in the unique way that each one of us has a dialogue with, you know, something greater than ourselves. I, I not, it's not necessary, but I do agree with you. And then when you go into that, or for myself, when you go into that, then ritual, I, I, one of the gifts I've gotten on this winding path that I've taken for myself and in, um, in investigating spiritual concepts um, is the power of ritual. Mm-hmm. that I think is deeply missing from modern culture. And I, I also was able to witness the lack, not that there's anything wrong, none of us, you know, but we don't, not necessarily all born into a situation where we have everything that we need, meaning life gives us this journey that we learn and educate and grow. And when I saw the cultures intact, I realized that even if it wasn't the rituals that were happening in a yoga situation, that ritual was present in places that I couldn't even, that I hadn't experienced in my everyday life and how powerful it was to mark the seasons or understand that certain, certain cultures do observations on a lunar calendar and why that happens. And um, how does ritual show up for you? What is that? Is that a tool for you? Can you talk to a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, ritual is something to me that's a little, I would say more, uh, we, sort of weaves into my life to sort of see the way patterns reveal themselves and and to be attentive. There was a time where I sat down to practice at a particular time for a particular length of time every day. And now it it flows for me. Mm-hmm. And so I would say that my 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 ritual orientation definitely has greater fluidity to it. And that's one of the things I've been, I think my work has led me to with mantras because typically, for instance, Kate, when I first received a mantra, I was a young teen. My parents took um, my brother and I to be initiated in something that was very much in vogue back back in the 70s called TM or Transcendental Meditation. And we, we, we received one mantra um, and then we were told to sit 20 minutes in the morning and then 20 minutes uh, in the evening. And I still, 
uh, believe in having a regimen and a rhythm if that supports you. What I, my practical mantra, which is the name of my course, is the beauty of mantra is you can carry it with you all day long. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I could be having this conversation with you and chanting mantras or going on a walk and reciting my mantra, or cooking and reciting my mantra. So for me, the ritual is, is, is being reminded to stay connected to your source. Mm-hmm. And um, ultimately, where I've come with that is that everything serves as a reminder if you're paying attention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about your course. What would somebody, I mean, I know they can go onto the website, so you don't have to you know, go into all the details. Mm-hmm. But, but if someone's like, oh, I think, hmm. What would you say about it now? Like, what could, what does somebody meet you? What is the space they meet you in? What I like to do is I present what I call a garden of mantras <laughs> for all different kinds of purposes. And I like to orient people to learning how to pronounce each mantra <laughs> and then to give them guidance for as to the meaning of that mantra and then how it can be used to shift your state of being in any given situation. So I break this garden of mantras into mantras for purpose. I have mantras for empowerment. I have mantras for expansion Hmm. and then mantras for freedom and different kinds of mantras. Um, And then I, with each mantra, I have not only a translation, but you asked if if I thought there was power in the English language. And what I do is I translate each into a simple uh, English affirmation. So affirmations like I am creative, I am grounded, I am healthy, I'm abundant, I am strong, I'm resilient, I'm radiant, I'm courageous. I'm joyful, I am love, I am nurtured, I'm embraced, I am connected, I am free, I am whole, I am compassionate. And so based upon what somebody wants to work on in their, li- in, in their life, then we uh, orient which mantra would be most helpful, but not as, you know, Kate, I'm giving you one mantra, I'm giving you a garden of mantras that you can explore kind of like having a collection of essential oils or herbs <laughs> in your medicine cabinet. And I... Um, I want to fortify people um, with the opportunity to be in relationship with these mantras. You know, like I'm feeling something, boom, there's Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya or Om Mani Padme Hum. That's the Mm. one I'm feeling now. Or Mm -hmm. I am love, Aham Prema. My self-confidence is feeling low. I'm I'm judging myself. I got to get back to looking upon myself with compassion and love or aham prema that's i am love so ways ways to just again bring the psyche back into a harmonious state through these beautiful sounds that is such a um, necessary invitation right now truly which wasn't a planned state <laughs> someone's like well you invited them on I'm like, but i'm listening open to what you're offering and i find that a lot of a lot of what 2020 is apparently, I don't know any more than anyone else does, but apparently is doing is in, in the tumultuousness of it, there's also this coalescence of medicine, meaning I heard you say like, well, I was heading toward this education role anyway, and it's not as if you just thought, oh, what should I teach? It's like, it was a culmination of years. Like you mentioned, you know. That's exactly right. Right? Like, like right. I would... I would imagine there's something really beneficial. I mean, it's so simple, but one of the, when I would teach community college writing, I would tell the kids, you know, the five paragraph essay is really isn't where it's at, but if you master it, then you can break it. So meaning ritual is, I, I think that anything, if you discipline yourself to really be intimate with something, then it just sort of seeps into your essence, right? Then you can do the mantra. Like if you just heard the word mantra and you might've heard, well, how could he do mantra and talk to her at the same time, right? But, right. but grandma can make soup, talk to you, and watch the baby. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, I, I feel in, in this world, you know, that, that, that on a level, we all have to multitask. Right. And so that, that's, that's kind of my role is let's, let's just bring these into the experience of life. And, uh, you know, even if you can just take a couple couple minutes here and a couple minutes of there it doesn't all have to happen all at the same time 
Right, because then there can be the slippery slope of like, I don't have time for that. But actually carving out a little bit for any practice that reconnects you to yourself, which is what I'm hearing about mantra. I think we all have that like, oh, but the cup of tea or, oh, the mantra or, oh, the 10 minute walk, like gave me enough to keep going, right? Like that's really where we're at right now is the long haul. You might say you don't have minutes for yourself, but that could cost you days, honestly. Absolutely. And I like the idea, like when multitasking, for instance, you know, going on a walk and with every step you say a mantra or like mm. you say, you're making tea. And as you're making the tea, you're, you're repeating the mantra. And so you're infusing you know, that liquid with that vibration so that it's, I just, my point is I don't want to see the mantra isolated from other mm. kinds of experiences. I feel that they can, they can just add deeper, a deeper life flow to everything. I think that's also, I mean, just in the body work aspect of what I'm, what I'm personally interested in, if your mind is there and your body's moving, then it's also, I don't know this, you know, officially, but that kind of like brings it through the whole system, doesn't it? Like your blood's uh, pumping, you know? Yes, very much so. And I think 2020 also has a lot of us sort of confined, you know? And so something that can bring us to our center, no matter where we are, because literally in the world, in different countries, there's different situations, different moments, or, you know, a lot of moms um, have been like, taken on a different burden. Oh, now I'm homeschooling, you know, we don't have to go down that track. But that's a major decision. That's not just like I have PDF files that I'm printing and we're done. You know what I mean? So you, you have to find a place to, to fill the cup, right? Very much so. I mean, I, I tell people that, um, you know, this time for me, hasn't, you know, there's been a lot of silver lining in it for me. And in a way, it's really brought forward my kind of inner hermit, my inner monk, and people would say to me, well, you know, how do you travel and tour so much? Like, how do you do it? And the answer is, when I'm not touring, I take an incredible amount of uh, solitude and quiet time for myself. And now that solitude mm. and quiet time has definitely expanded. So the rhythm and the pace of things for me, you know, it's not unusual, but, I, but I know for a lot of people it is, you know, the rhythm is very different now than it was six months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. No, for some, for some it is. And for, it, it is funny that there's a lot of people that I know as well. They're like, well, I didn't really miss that. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, but for those who are recalibrating, I yes. also find this is a really wonderful practice to, you know, because that, that spacious, for me, mantra is the closest sound to silence. I was at some of those kirtans that you had on Friday nights and yoga on Maine when I didn't even exactly understand. Maybe some people have had this time in their life. I think the 20, even though for me, this was in my thirties, I think the twenties really do this where you kind of get caught up in this group thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, for me, I, my 20 group thing was very fun. <laughs> and so it was my thirties, mm-hmm. very different. And I remember, um, partially going to them because I was in this yoga teacher training and I met really cool people who are still friends, close friends of mine many years later. And there was this fun thing. And one of the teachers was doing them and, um, you know, we would go and I, I would think about how I would be not even totally in tune with the names that were being used, but, but being, so clear and so when you mentioned the absence I'm like I can remember singing and laughing and um feeling this euphoria from just singing in a group in a room full of people where in my 20s being in a room full of people not that there's anything wrong with this would probably would be in a bar and as a female I'd have to be on the defense most of the time you know to make sure who's behind me who's next to me and here I was in a room where I felt no fear Sure. Well, you know, that that's the beauty of all forms of yoga practice is that non-judgment. Um, there's so much power in a person's voice and what is communicated. I believe that the beauty of a voice is that everyone has has one, but more so that everybody has a unique voice. There's no two people that sound the same. 
So what happens is when there's the coming together of all those textures and uh, diverse timbres and sounds that to me reflect a person's soul, it's a magical thing that takes place because it's a bunch of individuals singing. And of course, this is all in a very loving, safe, connected kind of space. It goes from individuals singing to I'm singing and you're singing to we're singing. Yep. Which is which is a which is a more pleasant experience that connection. But then it goes even one step deeper in those special moments. It's not even we're singing. So there's there's fifty people, but there's just one voice. Mm-hmm. It's like everybody's voice has sort of now you know it's like we've gone deeper to the source of the voice itself. And and that's what as a musician, all all of us musicians, that's why we play music because suddenly we're up there with other musicians and we're making an effort to put our fingers here and put our fingers there and sing this note and sing that note in harmony and unison with the rest of the band. And suddenly there's this moment where nobody's doing anything. Music is just happening. So Kirtan for me as a musician was a way to sort of invite everybody into that experience, regardless of whether they were musicians or not. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's the gift of music is even if you go it to is. a rock concert, there's mm-hmm. this unification, everybody's singing, you know, baby, we were born. I knew you were right. going there. I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you add the vibration of Kirtan, which as I mentioned was calibrated for, for the sole purpose of spiritual alignment and you have everybody tuning into that simultaneously is very transformational and very powerful one of the things that that happens to me online is because i work with zoom there's a delay so i'll be chanting and each person will be listening to me and they'll be chanting along but we won't hear each other chanting together but what's so interesting to me is that when i start uh, reciting the mantra or chanting the mantra with everybody there on my screen, I get to a point where I don't hear their voices, but but I feel that sense mm-hmm. of cohesion and that sense of connection because the mantra isn't limited to time and space. You know, I remember Miles Davis saying that when he was around with the Charlie Parkers and uh, Thelonious Monks, Dizzy Gillespie's of the world, they were, they were sort of, it was the, the start of bebop. He said, those wild sounds that came out of my trumpet, they're still floating around the universe somewhere. Like they don't just go away. So I feel like that's, that's the potency of sound is it, 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 it great. It breaks barriers. It, that's both I, between people and also, you know, within yourself when you chant a mantra. Well, that's, down barriers. You know, what's interesting as I was reading this morning, reflecting on um, the first time I heard to be desireless, you know, like the first time, I don't remember the exact moment, but who I was when I was first hearing to be desireless. And as a definition, I was an East Coast child. You know, even if I was in my early 20s, I was very East Coast. My family worked in corporate. I was raised Catholic. And I was like, why would you want to be desireless? Like, that would be the removal of everything. And listening to that now, and then when you mentioned, um, you know, the absence of yourself, I, I chuckled earlier in, in when we were talking, cause I thought, well, that's really it. It's, it's, it parlays right into what you talked about Kirtan, but also what you talked about with the mantra. It's that you go from, I'm doing it, we're doing it to this moment where it's being done and you get to enjoy right. it. Right. Nobody's doing anything. It's absolutely effortless. And yet there it is happening of its own accord. Which would make sense that, um doing it through zoom would not be a limitation there wouldn't be a lack and because people are opening up to the subtleties of of interpersonal connection like you know you and i could each think of someone that we love that's not sitting next to us and we'll still feel the warmth in our heart even if they're not alive anymore that presence still runs over us right you know those moments just before our call began i was thinking about a friend and boom she texted right right then and there right right as i was thinking about it (laughs) You know, and, and so the, these connections are, and that, you know, I, I told that little story about Krishnamurti saying, I practice yoga, um, you know, <laughs> but I try not to make a habit out of it. That's, that's what I tell folks is that, so let's say you're chanting together and, and suddenly this magic moment happens where I, I what I ultimately uh, call, called it is all is well consciousness 
where mm -hmm. suddenly you're just chant you, you come into uh, the the kirtan the chanting session and you're, you're feeling encumbered by all by all the weightiness in your life and the struggle and then somewhere along the line it just drops and it's all as well consciousness like everything is it's okay it's it's gonna work out it, mm -hmm. there's no pro there's no real problem that you have to be uh stressed out about and so and then there's you just feel the presence of of something greater <clears throat> so what happens is that in that moment you feel oh well all the rest of the time that greater presence isn't there until this moment and then it shows up because we're all engaged in this wonderful practice together but the truth is is that the practice enabled you to to feel it to feel its presence and the reality is is that the presence of that call it love consciousness connection it's always there it's always there and even if you're and i've always felt that there's a distinction between its presence and you being aware just because you're not aware of it doesn't mean that it isn't there and so that's where faith comes in like if you're really struggling in a moment just remembering that although you may not be feeling connected or aware of the presence of this grace just just know that it's still there you're just somewhere else <laughs> But that's true. That's a beautiful thing that's for someone to tuck into their pocket, because we've had those moments where we're con we've already lived through moments that we're convinced we will not get through, and here we are remembering them. Right. So I I feel like it's connected, and I hope it's not just self indulgent. But you mentioned Bruce Springsteen because because we know that I, I I'm a, I'm in love with this man in the in the way that of appreciation. Sure. And I had the good fortune of meeting him and. I knew that I was going to have like 16 seconds or something ridiculous like that in his presence when he did his book tour. And um, right before then I was thinking um, standing rock was happening. So I had thought about like writing on a shirt, you know, support standing rock. And, and then I was thinking about, he had to know that I liked his album since I was two years old and I, all these messages that I really felt that he needed to know. And I was listening to this interview a week before and everyone was getting to chat as he was talking and I saw everyone saying the same thing. You have to know how long I've, had, I've loved you. You, you know, you, you've been the soundtrack for everything that I've ever want, you know, done like all. And I was listening to this and I'm like, I am just one of thousands who this man um, who talks about his concerts as being a spiritual experience, right? The communion. Sure. And um, I thought, you know, I don't need him to know that and I'm not making him a godlike figure, but in my mind, his music has been a major solace that is that is bigger than him because I've infused my own moments into it, and I um I let go of wanting to say anything to him. And so when I was right in front of this, and I think this is a marker of how we treat these moments that we have to get right. I just looked at him. I had nothing to plan to say, and I said, "You're a miracle," and he just laughed. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that is the same. If it was so serious for me to get it right, we wouldn't have been able to have actually a moment of connection and laughter. Absolutely. And I right, feel so, that mm. that's what you're talking about, too. I do. It is. You know, the mind has its own agenda, which is all well and good. But in the end, you know, you leave it at the door and you just enter into that pure presence. And in order to do that, you know, you become desireless, like the word you used. And and what wants to come through comes through because you're receptive. David, if someone I am, I feel even though we have known each other for a very long time, I feel like my cup has been filled talking with you. I am delighted with what you're offering and the clarity. And I feel like the care with which you're presenting decades of, um, I'm sure, joy, but also like mountains climbed. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's been a journey, that's for sure. So if someone wants to find you, just give us those those places to be found. Well, going to my website is is a one-stop, uh, davidnewmanmusic.com, and that will lead you to my programs, mostly online these days, and also a link to my music on Spotify or Apple Music or YouTube. Um, and, you know, I always 
tell folks that there's a few of us out there. Um, there's a few David Newmans. There are. Sound, <laughs> there's a soundtrack composer and a tenor <laughs> jazz saxophonist named David Fathead Newman, who I met at a jazz club. Um, oh really? The doppelgangers came together. <laughs> yeah, we came together, and I'm all. I just got tagged on uh, the soundtrack composers uh, on on social media. Um, I guess so, Sony Pictures said that I, you know, that I did the soundtrack to their new animated film, and I wish I had. I <laughs> right. sure that'd be a wonderful royalty know, financial, check. Yeah, yeah, royalty <laughs> check. Uh, but nonetheless, when people they'll 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 figure out which one I am, and but my website gives all those links. And the next mantra class is, is opening up in October. Is that true? Yeah, I'm doing one October, starting October 3rd on Sundays from 12 to 2 for four Sundays. But I'm also in uh, late September doing a weekend uh, a program called Kirtan College for people who want to dive deep into that particular musical style of mantra. It's a program I've been doing for the last 15 years at a center in uh, Virginia called Yogaville, and I just love that there's a place in the world called Yogaville. Mm-hmm. Um, but but we can't congregate, so we're we're doing that online. And I'm also um, in September. I think it's the 22nd, doing an hour and a half mantra primer for people who uh, may not necessarily be ready to jump into a four week course, but who would like to spend an hour and a half and and learn uh, a little bit about mantras and take away some practical tools. So those are the three things I have um, coming up in September and early October. That's beautiful. And can we guess that the mantra class will be cycling again after October? Yeah, that will be my fourth incarnation. So I've, I'm in the middle of my third right now. Mm-hmm. And that, that will be my fourth. And I there are mantras that stay the same, but Every course, I'll pull out a couple and do a couple new ones. Um, you know, I, I've, I've amassed a bunch. And so I, I like to just sort of keep them cycling through, but I try and keep them as simple and useful as possible. That's the beauty of timeless wisdom is that you can keep revisiting something and it and opens another door because, you, you, you know, you never get into the same river twice. Well, especially mantra because it's repetitive. I remember someone asking a teacher of mine, um, you know, why do we do the mantra so many times? And his answer was because it takes that many times to get one good one. <laughs> <laughs> you can define one good one in many different ways. Yeah, but, you yeah. sure can. You <laughs> sure can. Oh, that's perfect. David, thanks for taking the time and we wish you all the best. My pleasure. Thank you, Kate. Namaste.